0: Every little, bit hurts. Every little bit hurts. Every
1: little bit hurts. Brenda Holloway, there you are, and in your face on 3CR with James. Our guests today are Nigel Giles and Adam Noviello, but we do have author Nigel Giles on the line. Nigel, welcome to the show. Great to have you on board. Now, you are the author. You have edited Number 96, the 50th anniversary album, Behind the Scenes, with the cast of the hit TV series. It really was an iconic series, screened from 1972 to 1977 on Australian TV. Tell us all about it.
2: Well, there was absolutely nothing like it uh, before and pretty much since. So uh, 50 years ago, we were, uh, the writers and producers and and cast and people making the show were presenting issues that had never been seen before, uh, breaking lots of taboos, presenting gay characters, uh, for instance, uh, and and all sorts of, uh, I mean, it was a soap opera, so they had uh, your typical cliffhangers and and all that sort of thing, but what made it so special was that it presented things like gay characters, nudity, uh, sex was uh, you know in, in the mix as well. So uh, yeah, very controversial.
1: And the public loved it. Tell us about that gay storyline. Of course, uh, it featured the actor Joe Hashem, who played Don Finlayson. And there was an incredible scene with two men in bed, never before seen on Australian TV.
2: Well, there were uh, uh, executives at Channel 10 who who made the, uh, or who broadcast the show, who were very homophobic. So at one point, they said, we're going to turn the character of Don Finlayson straight. And it's a credit to the producers and the writers that they said, if you force us to do that, we'll take the show to another network. Um, so there were there were sort of uh, certain restrictions that the control board uh, were behind, but also, you know, the, the, the homophobic uh, network executives as well. Um, but, uh, so the, there was some uh, sort of uh, control over what was being presented. So, uh, when the producers made the movie version, that's when they could have a gay kiss and uh, two men in bed and that sort of more explicit depiction of uh, sexuality. Um, The kiss was subsequently cut from the film, unfortunately. The film came out in 1974. uh, As you mentioned, the series started in 1972. And then it wasn't really until uh, towards the end of the series when things had calmed down and and people weren't so shocked anymore that they could explore the actual uh, sex life of, of
1: the gay characters, I guess. Another groundbreaking theme featured the legendary Carlotta. No one knew she was trans. She didn't tell anybody she was trans, you know, like, you know, on set. And then there was this incredible storyline where it was revealed. Tell us about that. It was the first time something like that had been screened in the world in a TV series.
2: First time a a trans actress had portrayed a trans character and... Uh, you know, it wasn't until last year or, or, or maybe the year uh, before that Neighbours uh, introduced, in Australia I'm talking about, uh, introduced a, a trans uh, actress, uh, act uh, portraying a, a trans character. So that's how groundbreaking number 96 was. You know, they, Carlotta was in some of the very early episodes, I think around about 1973, she joined the cast just as, as, a, as a guest uh, performer and she was involved with a, a, an actor, uh, Jeff Kevin, who played Arnold Feather and Arnold was a, a, a basically a comedy character, particularly at that stage. So Carlotta's storyline uh, involved a romance uh, with Jeff's character, Arnold. Uh, Carlotta played a character called Robin Ross. And uh, there's a, a surviving clip from those days where, uh, you know, Arnold Feathers' uh Miss Ross, Mr. Ross. He, he didn't know uh, what to call her. And... The, and uh, it wasn't done with any sense of shame or, or, or anything like that, you know, keeping Carlotta's identity a secret. It was done uh, in terms of comedy and storylines. So, and Carlotta uh, says her stint in number 96 really put her on the map. She'd, she was famous for lay girls, but being in a, a soap opera that screened five nights a week and was watched by close to a million people, people really, uh, you know, put her out
1: there. The forward of your book is written by Abigail. Abigail had a huge impact in Australia uh, and was really the first sex symbol on Australian TV. Tell us about Abigail.
2: Still just as gorgeous as ever. And I was wrapped uh, when she agreed to write the forward for this book. She's... Uh, very much out of the spotlight these days. Um, But again, uh, you know, her appearance in Number 96 as Bev Horton, one of the uh, original cast members, really, uh, she received so much publicity, not only because she was gorgeous, but because uh, people thought they'd seen her in the nude a lot more than what they actually ever did. She was in a see through blouse in one of the the early episodes, and you saw her naked from the back, but she never did full frontal nudity. Um, uh, You know, it was all very tame, but in the minds of the viewers, they saw a lot more than uh, what they ever did, and I think that was just a bit of wishful thinking because she was so
1: gorgeous. Of course, the series had a bomb explosion. Now, the impact that had in Australia was so huge that on the uh, six o'clock news, they actually broadcast the names of all the characters who had been killed. Uh, The whole country was enthralled. Uh, There's never been anything like a, a TV series that has had such an impact. Tell us a bit about The Bomb.
2: So the bomb came uh, on a Friday night in 1975, September 1975, uh, right at the end of the episode and the viewers had to wait till the Monday uh, night episode to find out who'd been killed off and it really upset a lot of viewers when they found out that uh, four characters died, three of them had been long-term favourites, uh, Aldo and Romer in the galley and Les Whitaker from the Wine bar, um, but you know you mentioned it, it making the news. It was uh, that was the impact that the the show had. It was it was so prevalent in our uh, consciousness, uh, that it was newsworthy and uh, the uh, newspapers. Uh, the on the day when it was revealed who was killed, that was it was front page news. Uh, there was uh, there was talk of uh, people calling Channel Ten and jamming the switchboard to complain about who'd been killed off. Uh, some viewers started a petition to try and bring the dead characters back. It's uh, you know that's how uh, how much viewers felt connected to that show. They 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 loved it. They loved the characters, and uh, they got upset when when their favourite characters were killed off.
1: Of course, for decades, Australian cinema goers had been deprived of Australian films. Uh, And I guess television had been, you know, pretty deprived as well. There was, you know, an influx of of material from Britain and the United States. Do you think it was because of that and then this series came along that captured the kind of it's time flavour of the change, the social change that was happening in Australia that meant that it was so successful?
2: I think that uh was definitely part of it, you know, we'd had things like Coronation Street, I think Peyton Place from the US had was a sort of uh, evening soap opera, but uh we we'd had cop shows uh produced here but and and Bell Bird, but Bell Bird was a 15 minute uh rural based uh tame ABC uh series so when number ninety six came along uh, it as I said before it just presented things that had never been seen before and and the producers were uh deliberate in making it shocking and and rude and and they wanted to to get the the attention of, of the viewing public and they sure did it's um, but not only were they presenting. Something Australian, but the the diversity of characters was pretty amazing for the time as well. You had pensioners, you had business women, you had uh, Jewish business people, uh, ten pound palms, and you know the sexy younger cast as well. So it was a a real melting pot of society and. been said that viewers if you didn't like someone in flat whatever then there was someone else you liked in another flat and and there was just someone for everyone to to identify with and you know so people would start watching it get hooked on a character and then the storylines and then they get involved with other characters and and
1: Of course, it straddled the black and white and colour eras in Australian TV. And what's really sad, but also pretty scandalous, is that the 10 Network didn't think that people would be interested in the black and white episodes. And so what they did was they made like a wall decoration in their studios out of a lot of the tapes. And so many episodes have been lost. Right, yeah.
2: So I think there's something like 16 or so black and white episodes from the uh, very early days and then there's a whole chunk of, I don't know, maybe 500 black and white episodes that are missing. So from 1972, 1973 and uh, and part of 1974 and then all the colour episodes still exist and are held by the National Film and Sound Archive. But that um, destruction of those tapes is, cultural vandalism, as far as I'm concerned, and and many other people are concerned. And, you know, people like Robert Heltman appeared in a cameo role. That's lost. Um, Thankfully, Frank Thring was in it in the colour days, so in a cameo, so his little uh, stint in the deli still exists. But there's some great stuff from those, early black and white days that we will never be able to see. All that exists is the the script and um, a a couple of um, uh, stills, production stills from from some of those really controversial uh, episodes. And the other thing is those episodes that are lost are from when the show was really at its peak. So, yeah, it's such a shame that they they didn't think it was worth preserving them I don't get it.
1: Have we lost the episode where Carlotta came out as trans
2: we've got uh, we don't have her she was in a few episodes and there's just one uh, made one or two clips that still exist and um, you know people can find them on. YouTube and uh, on uh, DVD releases and and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, I guess it's better that we've got something rather than nothing.
1: But it really does reflect the cultural cringe, doesn't it, that existed in Australia at the time? And the fact that even though it was having such a huge impact on the community, they still didn't think that people would be interested in it once we switched to colour. Yeah,
2: that's... That's why it just uh, it doesn't make any sense to me at all. I just think, even if the producers didn't think the show would ever be repeated in full again, you should still preserve these episodes because the show was so groundbreaking, uh, so controversial, and so ahead of its time. Um, you know, they the episodes definitely deserve to. Be uh, safe. I-, I can't even uh, you know begin to think what else we've lost from those episodes. Um, I didn't start watching the show until 1974, so I, I was uh, very young when Number 96 started. So there's some uh, episodes that myself and others will never ever be able to see. And you know, there's uh, actors like Candy Raymond and Carmen Duncan, a lot of their stuff has gone, um, and plenty of others too, unfortunately.
1: Lorraine Desmond did make a cameo in the black and white days, and that episode is saved.
2: Yes, that's right. And that's one of the, uh, 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 you know, there was a lot of comedy in the show, and that's one of the most hilarious scenes from throughout the whole series uh, run, I think. And, you know, and Lorraine hadn't done a lot of acting. She'd done uh, variety and, and singing, but and I, she might have done a, a guest role in a Crawford cop show, but uh, that was one of her first television acting jobs. And, you know, then, of course, she went on to other things, including a country practice, which she's uh, very well known for. Um, but, yeah, that was uh, one of her uh, the breakout roles.
1: Nigel, it must have been an incredible journey for you, editing this book and connecting with the cast. Tell us about that journey and the backstory that got you there.
2: Okay, so um, uh, in, I think, September last year, I received an email from Sheila Cannelli, who played Norma Whitaker in the show, and she had a box of chapters that had been written by some cast members for pr- a proposed book to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the show back in, that would have been about 1997. They couldn't find a publisher, uh, so the, the chapters just sat in the box gathering dust. Sheila just thought I might be interested uh, to read them, not to publish them. So she sent them to me, and as I was reading them, I just thought there is uh, enough here... Uh, for the, the start of a book, and I realised the 50th anniversary was coming up. So um, I spoke to Nick Walker at Australian Scholarly Publishing, and he knew the show. He'd watched it when he was a younger man, and so he knew the importance of it. Um, and so with his go-ahead, I then contacted people like Joe Hashim, Chad Haywood who hadn't contributed chapters to the uh, original proposed book, and a few other actors, Paula Duncan, uh, Roger Ward, uh, and just asked them if they would like to write chapters. Uh, Nearly everybody I asked uh, agreed, and so uh, now we've got uh, a book written by, I think there's 31 contributors, and they're all uh, individual Voices talking about their experience of the show, but also they talk about their careers, um, and it's been uh, for me it's just been fantastic uh, having their uh, trust and and their generosity, and uh, and in a lot of cases they provided photographs that no one'd really seen before. So, um, yeah, I, I'm really pleased that. Uh, we've managed to put together something that commemorates one of the most iconic TV shows ever produced anywhere.
1: And you've really captured it, and you've captured it in the voices with the written words of the cast. That's quite an incredible achievement, Nigel. It's really wonderful.
2: And some of them were sort of, you know, oh, look, it was so long ago, so I would just sort of prompt them and and... and once people start remembering things, more memories come back. So there's a vast uh, mix of, of actors. Some are in a long-term roles. Some were only there for three months, or one actor was there for ten weeks. But they just present uh, completely uh, different stories and and rich stories and. Yeah, I'm very pleased with it.
1: Is there any anecdote in particular that really surprised you or shocked you?
2: Uh, (laughs) Let's see. Well, you know, a couple of them mentioned, without going, they didn't mention names, but they did talk about uh, how friendly the cast got in terms of sleeping together. Um, People haven't really, cast members haven't really talked about that before apart from the obvious ones that uh where the couples were in a relationship but i think there was uh, you know a bit of shenanigans going on behind the scenes that uh, that matched what was going on on screen so
1: <laughs> and that was uh, the era as well like the sexual revolution kind of happened in australia in the 70s didn't it
2: uh, you know, people often say you couldn't make number ninety six now. It was of the seventies, and uh, you know, you don't see a lot of nudity on on television uh, these days. Um, that's sort of more restricted to cinema or I, or uh, pay TV, I guess. Um, but yeah, the seventies were. Uh, we had the change of uh, government after, I think, 23 years of a, a Liberal government. Gough Whitlam was elected in uh, towards the end of 1972. Number 96 had been going for maybe eight or nine months when, when that happened. Um, Gough Whitlam and his wife were said to be fans of, of Number 96, or at least watched occasionally. Uh, Margaret Whitlam had gone to school with Pat McDonald, who played Dory Evans, so... Uh, There was that connection. But, uh, you know, they were presenting drug use and and even things like alcoholism, breast cancer, just issues that uh, hadn't really been explored uh, in this manner before. And and it was partly because in the 70s it was still all new. um, But also... Life in the seventies, uh, you know, apart from what was being presented on television, uh, we were sort of growing up a bit more and 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 realising that, you know, Australia can uh, come up with whether it's literature or, or uh, plays or film or television that is uh, you know comparable to anything on a worldwide scale.
1: And it also had the first lesbian storyline on Australian TV as well.
2: I think so. Uh, I'm, and again, that would have been episodes that I never saw, but Tony Lamond, uh, who was a big name, uh, you know, and still, uh, still commands a lot of respect today, uh, she played a lesbian witch. And then Hazel Phillips, uh, who was, one of the early Gold Logie winners and known for uh, variety in sort of talk shows, she popped into number 96 and they turned her character uh, lesbian. And she wasn't, Hazel wasn't too happy about it because as she'd come from uh, sort of daytime television and had an audience of older ladies, she was a bit concerned <laughs> about what her ladies would think of her playing a lesbian, but, you know, it was all good fun and, and, uh, and controversial and, and people lapped it up and, and accepted it. So, you know, and a lot of it was done with comedy. I think, uh, with Hazel's character, she was, uh, peeping at uh, another female, uh, in the shower, that sort of thing. There was, you know, it was, it was a sort of comedic uh,
1: representation. And there was also the pantyhose murderer as well, which enthralled the Australian public. Tell us about that.
2: So that would be up there with the bomb as one of the biggest cliffhangers uh, in the entire run, not just of the show, actually, but in terms of Australian television. Um, and this is where the writers were so clever. They they could uh, introduce plot twists and, and things that had viewers wondering what the hell was going to happen next, who was responsible. Again, they killed off a couple of
1: course, Australian media then was so concentrated. There were so few TV channels and there was something wonderfully communal about, you know, a million people watching the show at the same time. You know, it was quite extraordinary.
2: It it was. And that's why I think it it sort of can't happen again, because these days people can watch things whenever they want. But, you know, you had to uh, watch number 96 at 8.30 at night, Monday to Friday. Otherwise, you'd miss it and, and you'd only hear about it the next day at, at work or, or at school. Um, and the fact that you could only watch it at a specific time meant everybody was tuned in at, at the same time. So you got these massive ratings. The show was the number one show across the country two years in a row, and it was in the top 10 for four of its uh, five-and-a-half-year run. So that's how phenomenal it was. And it saved uh, Network 10 from bankruptcy.
1: Nigel, congratulations on your book. How can people get a copy?
2: Uh, Go into your local bookshop, and if they don't have it, they, they can order one, or people can order directly from... ASP. They're based in North Melbourne. Uh, it's, it's a, I think it's a great book. It's, it's a worthy commemoration of uh, 50 years. And if, if people love the show, they love the book. If they don't know about the show, this is uh, how they can find out just how uh, controversial it was.
1: Well, the book is called Number 96, 50th Anniversary Album, Behind the scenes with the cast of the hit TV series, Nigel Giles. Thank you so much for chatting with me today on Three CR. My pleasure,
2: James. Thanks so much for having me. All Cheers. The best. Cheers. Cheers. Nigel Giles, there
1: you are, and in your face on Three CR, and here's Marion Faithful.
3: And the days are fine
0: 3CR
4: And hurricanes and rains black- tan in trick Savage yes. in the cruel.
1: there from Hedwig and the Angry Inch, Wicked Town. Joined by Adam Noviello, who is the star of, uh, one
5: of the stars of Sensor.
1: Yes. Come from rehearsal, do tell.
5: Yes, I literally, I was released early so I could come and chat with you, but yes, you must excuse me if I smell, I feel like I'm all sweaty and yuck from running around a rehearsal room all day, but I'm here and I'm thrilled, thank you for having me.
1: Tell us about Sensor.
5: So Sensor is, uh, this a brand new play uh, commissioned by Theatre Works um, to be part of their you know 2022 season, and it's written by the brilliant uh, Brit Shipway, who's a fantastic you know actor writer extraordinaire. And so Sensor tells the story of a sort of not too distant dystopian future where music no longer exists. So it's this actually terrifying concept of what the world might look like if music has just been cancelled out of existence. So it's very much about, you know, what would we give up if we could hear a song or, you know, a song that we were connected with just one last time. So, yeah, it's set in 2043. And so Louisa Scrofani plays... Ava, uh, who's uh, a young girl in this sort of dystopian world, you know that has no music in it, where she hears music in her head, but she has no concept of what it is she's hearing in her head because she's grown up in a world where music doesn't exist. And so, I play the guardian, who is someone who kind of enforces those these rules in this world where music is a big big no no. And then I also play, um, <laughs> I also play the cabaret queen, who's this sort of cabaret songstress from the forties who. Sort of comes to life in Ava's imagination. It's a crazy show. It's going to be great. What's it like playing those two characters? That's quite a juxtaposition. Huge, yeah. It's it's joyous. It's it's hard. It's because I I bounce between them super quick. So I'll be on stage as the guardian, who's this very sort of very strict, very measured, uh, you know, corporate kind of person, and then the cabaret queen, who's this sort of you know. Uh, joyous representation of like the glory days of Weimar Cabaret. And so it's glorious fun because I just get to play these two very, very different humans in very different worlds. And yeah, bouncing between them is, is tricky and rehearsals is, it's, yeah, it's a lot of work, but it's, it's really, really cool. I'm so, so lucky to be doing it. What does Sensor tell us about the era that we're living in and the one we're moving into? Mm, I mean, its uh, I guess it's very much a sort of so subtle slash not-so-subtle look at cancel culture and how far it might go. You know, its we have little tiny sort of Easter eggs throughout the show about, you know, how artists, particularly musicians, use their art and use what they do to sort of express themselves or express their opinions, whether that be – personal political you know those sort of things i guess the world of this show is very much yelling at us being like we can't let it get this bad as far as you know not allowing people to express themselves and we can't let the world get to a point where we just give up all the good things to keep the world sort of stable or in line, I guess, you know, there's a moment in the show where my character sort of exclaims, you know, laws and rules are are there to keep us, you know, uh, to, to, there'd be chaos without rules and order essentially, which, you know, I guess there's some truth to that, but we just can't let the world get to the point where that is our priority, you know, keeping us all sort of in line and stagnant, you know, we need art and we need creativity and we need, you know, we need to be able to express ourselves in that way. So, Censor is certainly set in an authoritarian era. Would you say it's fascist? Very much so. I think you know, think sort of, you know, Gilead, A Handmaid's Tale kind of world. You know, a world where the 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 higher power just rules everything, and you know, as humans, we are absolutely just cogs in a in a mindless and, in this case, musicless machine. Yeah. Wow, okay <laughs> So that must be quite um, a challenge for the director To mm. kind of, you know, direct
1: this cast That's yeah. Pretty emotionally strung, I would imagine, Ooh, by yeah. these roles.
5: yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, Miranda Middleton is directing it and 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 she's you know she's brilliant in in every sense. But it's, I think the huge challenge is there's only two of us on stage for the entire show. So you know there's two humans and this, you know theatrical space to communicate this story and create this world. But I think what's happening for a lot of us, and Britt, the writer, actually said to us at one point, what's hard about approaching this work is that it's actually, terrifying to think that this could be real you know i mean yes we're in a theater and we're definitely sort of you know we're presenting uh, you know it in a theatrical space and leaning into that but you know it's 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 terrifying to think that what if what if this happened and that's i guess what we get from watching things like handmaid's tale like what if the world actually went in this direction and for all of us nearly everyone in this show is a, is a musician in some way you know louisa and i are both musical theater performers and singers and you know as musicians you think uh, it's so much part of my dna to sing and it's so much part of my life to hear music and what if that was just not there you know and what if we were told that music and singing was just bad and evil and and, and not good for us it's it's actually a very terrifying thing and going into work every day it's like obviously it's joyous to be working and creating a show but it's also yeah dark and terrifying to think about this concept. Mm. And it's also a metaphor for what some people are trying to do to the LGBTIQ
1: community as well. Mm. I mean, you've got these illicit dance halls happening in in, in your production, you know, with our drag kings yes. and, you know, yes. queens of, you know, great musical talent, you mm-hmm. know, and it's all clandestine.
5: It's kind of a metaphor for what they're trying to do to us, isn't it? Some, yeah, very much so, very much so. I mean, the, the cabaret queen, the other character I play, she, you know, exists in this sort of in 1943 the glory days of sort of the, the underground cabaret world where it was all very taboo and very like you didn't talk about it but you know if if you went underground into the, into a cabaret hall of some kind you would you would find yourself in the most extravagant artistic musical you know queer world and yeah that's very much the case at the moment in very many ways you know it's still very I guess, you know, not mainstream for those sort of spaces to just exist and thrive. So, you know, you fast forward to this world that Brits created and it's like it's even more dangerous, uh, you know, to consider, you know, performing and singing and playing music if it's illegal, you know, terrifying you sound like you're absolutely loving it. <laughs> I mean, it's juicy as an actor. Do you know what I mean? It's it's terrifying in all the ways I'm saying, but as an actor, it's brilliant to sort of, you know, look at this script and play these humans and play out this world because it's it just a plethora of possibility as far as the way Louisa and I play it and the way, you know, how far we can go with it. Oh, yeah. As a as an actor and as a creative, it's wonderful. I'm, I'm so happy. And combined
1: <laughs> your love of singing.
5: Yeah, uh, You've done cabaret. You starred in the last five queers.
1: <laughs>
6: yes. Uh,
1: you also did The Muse. Yep. You did There Was a Boy and Songs for Girls. Mm. And, of course, you starred in the Australian film
5: Spencer. Sure did, yeah. Wow. <laughs> that's quite a CV for such a young actor. Ah, that's very sweet of you. Yeah, I mean, cabaret sort of been a big part of my life. You know, when I was at drama school studying musical theatre, I was taught early on, you know, from some brilliant mentors about, you know, creating my own work and, and what, you know, I guess the art form of cabaret gives you as far as, you know, an endless possibility as to the kind of shows you can create so you know in between doing musicals I've yeah been very fortunate to be able to put on my own works and and also yeah be part of other people's you know visions as well Spencer was a huge undertaking you know a feature film I you know I co-wrote it and co-produced it and and was in it and you know again just another brilliant creative process much like censor I've been very fortunate Yeah, now tell us about your (laughs) co-star in Sensor Yeah, so Louisa is, I only met her on this project Which is bizarre because we've got so many similar friends And we, you know, operate in similar circles But um, Louisa is a brilliant actress, she's a brilliant singer And, uh, you know, you may have seen her in things like My Brilliant Career She was recently in um, uh, uh, Bonnie and Clyde in uh, Sydney at the Hayes So a very well-established, brilliant, you know, musical theatre actress and um, she's an incredible human. We're having a ball together. It's just the two of us in the show. So we're just, we're yeah, we're having a ball together. Wow and Theatre Works
1: really is very much at the forefront of doing challenging works Mm. Uh, for Mm. audiences
5: but also for the actors Uh, you must be digging deep. 100% yeah 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 I mean you know I was having this conversation with a friend last night you know I've been in a, a bunch of commercial musicals and you know it's the best job in the world you know you get paid you know good money to sing and dance every day but doing productions like this and projects like this it does just give you such an opportunity to really be creative and Yeah, Theatre Works are champions for independent theatre and champions for new writers and new works and for you know us actors. And I think you know what Sensor is giving Louisa and I it's an opportunity to create these people. This show's never been done before. These characters have never been brought to life before. And you know they've been very you know lucky for both of us. They've been written for the two of us. So. You know, it's um yeah, it's a brilliant opportunity for both of us and theatre works are incredible for that. Yeah. And how exciting starring in a production that's having its world
1: premiere.
5: Yeah, crazy. And like we we um uh we workshopped the show earlier in the year as well. So like and Louisa and I were part of that, and Miranda, our director, was part of that, and we've kind of been part of it since its inception. In, in fact, when this whole thing started for me, Brit Shipway the writer, I I did um chess the musical with Brit and um it was in the depths of lockdown at one point I forget which one it was um, and she just called me one day and was like so I'm writing this show for Theatre Works. I don't really know what it is but I know you're in it and I was like well I'm in because Brit is brilliant I love everything Theatre Works does and I just I just said yes straight away um, and yeah here we are now in week two of rehearsals and it's it's happening and yeah it's the world premiere no one's ever seen this before you've just come from rehearsal you mm. said you were sweaty <laughs> it must be very physical Yeah, I mean, uh, it is for both of us, but I, you know, without giving too much away, I mean, my cabaret queen character, you know, it's implied, I guess I get to sing, you know, outrageous music and, and, and bounce around in, in, you know, a fabulous costume, but also the role of the guardian, I do have quite a a physical sort of uh, dance element to that character as well. So I shan't give away too many secrets, but yeah, it's very physically demanding yeah I I definitely left rehearsals today feeling like oh I might be a bit sore tomorrow but you know that's showbiz (laughs) how do you manage that um I mean it's just part of the job it's just you know you put your body on the line in a show you know and that is part of the joy of it I guess it's it's one of the only professions I feel where you need to use your heart and your brain but also your entire body you know and I guess managing it just is the is the game. The game of it is right. How do I how do I go on stage and tell this story as arduous as it might be, and then replicate it all again tomorrow? You know, it's just it's about rest. It's about um, you know eating right, exercising, and just you know because my body and my voice is my instrument. So it's just about yeah making sure I'm fighting fit all the time. And rehearsals give you that. You know, we're in there ten till six every day, just you know smashing it and going going hard. So by the time we're on stage in front of an audience, we should be super fit and ready (laughs) it sounds like training for an olympic sport it is it is people don't know that element sometimes i feel like being a performer particularly in a in a well in a musical but in a piece like this where we are singing and we're dancing and you know and it's just the two of us on stage yeah it's very very physically demanding it's not all glitz and glam it's lots of sweat and bruises as well i mean i'm almost sensing it's like a ballet regime it, well yeah it, it can be it's very yeah you've kind of got to have the same sort of discipline and focus as you would i guess in sort of a, a balletic scenario you know you, you have your body's got to be up to it and um yeah but that's that's the joy of it and i think the joy of this show particularly is that brit's written it in a way that is it's user like utilizing all of louisa and my skills you know we're music theater performers we're dancers and singers and brit's I, I think very much wanting to pull out all of that for us and for the audience. I do have to ask what is mm-hmm. next for you after Censor. Ooh, I mean, you know, I, I I if I told you everything, I'd have to kill you. But um, <laughs> I personally I, I've just released an EP of my own music and, you know, I'm I'm looking at further releases and further live shows of my own tunes. And uh, as far as theatre is concerned, there's a I did a show in Fringe Festival in twenty 2019 and we're bringing that back next year which i'm really really excited for um the muse which you mentioned earlier um so very excited to bring that back and as far as theater is concerned stay tuned (laughs) <laughs> That's What's all this I can say. Space? I mean, since it is
1: happening, it sure at is at Theatre Works in September.
5: Give us those details. Correct. So we open on oh, I think our our preview is the seventh of September, and we only run for eight performances. So it's a very very short run. But yeah, we're on at Theatre Works, and people can find tickets at TheatreWorks.com dot com, and yeah, just come support new theatre, but also just see a brilliant new piece by a brilliant writer. It's going to be great. Adam Noviello, thank you so much for joining me today on 3CR.
1: My pleasure. Thank you. And we are out of here. Jacob is up next with a Friday rave. We will catch you on In Your Face next week. Taking us out is Cat Power. Bye, everyone.
6: Just another schoolboy, but then I was a liar Just so what you thought, did you hold me just a little too tight? Where were the tears in your eyes?